I'm Sheldon Brown. This is The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. If you'll gather around me, children, a story I will tell About pretty boy Floyd, an outlaw, Oklahoma knew him well It was in the town of Shawnee a Saturday afternoon His wife beside him in his wagon as into town they rode There a deputy sheriff approached him in a manner rather rude Vulgar words of anger and his wife she overheard Pretty boy grabbed a log chain and the deputy grabbed his gun. In the fight that followed, he laid that deputy down. Then he took to the trees and timber to live a life of shame. Every crime in Oklahoma was added to his name. But a many a starving farmer the same old story told How the outlaw paid their mortgage and saved their little home Well, you are listening to The Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. My name's Jack Thurston. And it's with enormous sadness that we're going through this Floyd Landis, Pretty Boy Floyd episode, the test of his B sample from his magnificent stage winning performance on stage 17 of the Tour de France has yet to be released we don't know the result um, it's possible and looks likely that um, his team are going to dump him and uh, it's difficult to see how the tour is going to get back from this without some really serious looking at what is professional cycling all about. I've wondered, I've seen lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six-gun and some with a fountain pen. Anyway, seeing as this is the last in the current season of The Bike Show, we're not going to be talking about Pretty Boy Floyd and his testosterone levels, whether... The whole peloton of the Tour de France has been serially pumping themselves full of baboon blood serum in order to get up those mountains a bit faster. We're going to be talking about cheerful things. We're going to be talking about brazing. We're going to be talking about rims and nipples, the secret arts of wheel building. We're going to be paying a visit to the Brompton factory. The Brompton Folding Bicycle Factory is the last place in London which is making a form of transport. I'm reliably told by Matt Tempest, who uh, a few months ago now went down and uh, met with Edward Donald, who's the marketing manager of Brompton Bicycles, for a all-access audio tour of the Brompton Bicycle Factory, including access to the auto-brazing machine, red-hot bits of metal being dipped into pots of water, Um, huge lumps of iron being bent asunder 
and all that goes on to make what is really one of the great successes of British manufacturing in the 21st century. And there aren't a whole lot of successes to, to crow about, but the Brompton Folding Bicycle is an icon, and um, it's about time we focused on it on the bike show on Resonance FM. So without any further introduction from me, um, I'll pass over to Matt Tempest down at the Brompton factory. Matt started by asking how the Brompton had come to being in the very first place. Brompton started off as a patent that uh, Andrew Ritchie lodged in 1975. And initially, his idea was to find a company which would actually manufacture the bike according to his design. And over the next six to seven years, he tried very, very hard both to contact existing manufacturers like Rally, but also to contact investment houses like 3i with a view to then setting up a manufacturing resource for the bike. And this six to seven year period ended in um, no real expression of interest from any of those types of companies. And so he took it upon himself to raise some money from friends and build an initial production run of 50 bikes all of which cost £250 each, the money being financed by friends, and he built an additional 30 on top, which he then subsequently sold. This initial production run of 80 led to further requests for the bike, and between 1982 and 1987, there were limited production runs of 100 a year or 250 a year, depending on uh, the availability of supplies and, and, and manpower. We then wind forward to 1987 when the company decided to refinance itself and actually seek money to buy presses and invest in tooling. Something in the region of £100,000 was raised, which in those days was really a lot of money, and especially a lot of money for a a very um, young concept, a folding bike. But suffice to say that after this money was raised... Um, the company entered production and built an additional production run of 200 to 300 bikes, and ever since then, production has grown at roughly 10 to 15% per year. This year, we look like it's going to be a total production run of 14,000 bikes. The name Brompton, I mean, does that just come from this area of West London where the firm's based? The myth, if you like, behind the choice of the word Brompton is that Andrew Ritchie, when he was carving up the first frame sets for his prototype, um, he was living in a flat opposite the Brompton Oratory. It's probably down to folklore a little why the word Brompton was chosen, but there were certainly other names knocking around, like the Putney, the Richmond, and that type of thing. But uh, Andrew presumably liked the sound of the word Brompton, and bit by bit it's, it's come to be um, a very, very well-known word and, and one which I think evokes many fond feelings amongst the bike's owners. Now I'm looking at a green machine with a curved silver press inside it and this is actually where the Brompton gets its famous bend, the sort of uh, camel-shaped hump it has in the crossbar. What's happening here is a chap is putting in silver tubing and if we listen to this... It's now got a, what, 20 degree bend in it? 20 degree is probably a fair estimate. I'm afraid I don't know the uh, exact answer. But it's the reason why we have it, if I can pick up on that, is, is to enable the, the parked bike to uh, put the rear wheel underneath the main frame. Sure, yeah, when you swing it underneath and it accommodates yeah. that, the curve of the yeah. wheel. And that's a, 
that's a very distinct element of the Brompton design and indeed therefore the silhouette of the bike and it's seen from a distance that's probably the most distinguishing part of the bike absolutely 80% of the componentry on the bike is designed and made specifically for for Brompton by um, our suppliers we use um, fast prototyping processes to develop plastic moulds for some of the plastic parts on the bike and then cranks for example or even the axle on the um, three-speed hub are developed and designed specifically by suppliers for us to meet certain uh, requirements of, of um, either the folded bike or just, just generally the design overall. And am I right in thinking that Brompton bikes are the only form of transportation actually made in the capital? Mm. So, we, so we understand, that's correct. We've recently um, signed a, a sponsorship agreement with the London Transport Museum, which is undergoing a redevelopment, and they brought that fact to our attention. I think it's certainly, um, it's certainly true that we are one of Britain's last remaining bike manufacturers, and people are always very surprised to hear that a bike is being made in London, which is arguably one of the top five most expensive cities in the world. Um, that said, we are able to retain our workforce here pretty well. We have a very loyal, um, loyal staff, some people have been here up, upwards of 14 years and um, it's a very multinational group as well. So we've got people who used to build boats or ships, brazers who used to sh- build ships in the Lebanon to people who built bridges in the Gabon and um, all sorts of people who bring all sorts of different skills to the job. And at the end of the day, it's a tremendous attention to detail and pride in what they, what they build, which I think um, they derive most satisfaction from. Well, let's move on to the next bit of the uh, process. So let's have a listen to this uh, auto-brazing machine which does those hinges. Wow. Now for the benefit of radio, what I'm looking at here is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 flame jets all crisscrossing in a sort of almost like a laser style uh, display which is where the brazing takes place of the, uh, these critical hinges that uh, allow the bike to be folded at across, its, across the mainframe and across the handlebars. It's a really uh, beautiful sight. What kind of temperatures are we looking at there with those light green flames? I, th- I think something in the region of 180 centigrade, but I can, I can check that. It's, it, it really is intensely hot, and the most important thing about it is it's, it's, um, it's kept as even as possible and you see the, the different angles from which the flames are, are being um, presented. That's to ensure as constant um, an effect of heat on the, on the joint because if you braise at an inconsistent temperature, if one side is mildly hotter than the others or cooler than the others, you get an inconsistency which can in, in turn result in the hinge being incorrectly set on the um, pin piece and that that would then not enable us to fold the bike correctly we're talking about fractions of millimeters of intolerance here and uh, it's one of the skills of uh, all this handwork that's done here yeah it's really wow That sound is the noise of two hinges being brazed under the uh, attention of around 
six jets each. It's really quite an amazing sight. Very, very precise. But uh, again, to a non-engineering uh, type like myself, almost like a, a, a small firework going off. So they're still glowing bright red, but slightly just starting to fade as they're about to be uh, subjected to some air pressure to cool them down and then some water cooling. Yeah, the water is sizzling off those, absolutely steaming off uh, those hinges. Now, I'm not just sure what's going on here, but I'm sure Edward will explain in a minute, but something is about to go pop. Here we are in, in the manual brace section of the Brompton factory. We have eight stations here, and Ali is one of the, one of the brazers. It's a very, very, very delicate job, um, hand brazing. It can truly be classed as craftsmanship. This particular um, exercise that we see here is a small one, uh, just joining um, two elements of the rear frame together. But importantly, we can see he's moving the jig around very easily. And this is because when you braise, you braise one direction and then turn the jig over and braise back in the other. So that what you do is you knit the braise together at the two points where it then joins. Brazing leaves this lovely gold finish around where the joins have been made between the, the, the two metal pieces. and. We actually offer a bike with a, with a lacquered finish, enabling people to see that braze work, and I think it's something that people are, are justifiably keen to see. It's fascinating watching it. It's certainly a long way away from your idea of a sort of car manufacturing assembly plant where it's all done with robotic arms and, uh, and computers. This is very much handcrafted and hand-built. Abdul's leaning over there with his uh, safety goggles on and a very, very precise little bit of... Uh, well, I'd call it welding, but I, is, it, is, is it welding, is it brazing? Yeah, it, it's brazing, yeah. I think uh, there's, a, there's a technical distinction between brazing and welding. When, when one's welding, the, the, the two metals are being heated, whereas with brazing, you're actually introducing a, 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 a means of bringing two metals together, and, and, and in this case, it's the copper that is heated to, to a temperature to then join, to join the steel. And just turning behind us, I mean, to look at the factory, everywhere we go, as, as well as individuals doing the little bit of the bike that they work on, we have these racks of parts labelled by year. I, I presume this is what 1991-1992 refers to, all stacks of componentry, all in crates, going right up to the ceiling, sort of 20 feet above us. It's a, a really fascinating site. Yeah, the site here is 400 metres squared, and... Um, when we moved here six, uh, six or seven years ago, I imagine at the time I wasn't here, it was pretty spacious and perhaps people felt a bit lost in it. But we've, uh, we've managed over the years to really, really fill it up. And you, it's, a, it's a big exercise in itself when one's running a factory and also being a supplier um, to ensure that what you order from, from overseas or what you order from this country arrives on time in the quantity that you want and then that indeed you can store it that is one of the reasons why we actually don't hold any bikes as stock at Brompton and build to order um, is because logistically the requirements of holding stock uh, would probably um, out, uh, out, outrun, if you like, the, the amount of space that we have here. Well, let's hear the sound of this uh, beautiful chain and cog going around.
It's got that factory fresh, gleaming, cleaning look to it that uh, unfortunately never lasts with any bike, no matter what sort it is. Once it's exposed to the elements and a bit of mud and a bit of oil, it's absolutely gleaming. How long does it take to bake a Brompton from sort of day one to, to, the, to the completion of the process? Well, when the bike first comes in, the mainframe section that everyone sees and we saw being pressed there is like a length of spaghetti. It's about a yard long and it's, it's, a, it's a piece of steel. And from, its moment, from the moment it gets taken up, it's, uh, we work on something approaching five and a half to six hours for total manufacturing time. That said, though, the assembly time of an individual model can vary between 27 and 42 minutes, depending on the model. And now that we've got our a la carte program, which enables people to tailor-make their bike, that build time is likely to vary even more as uh, different componentry mixes are, are, are put on individual bikes. Well, that was Matt Tempest, himself a Brompton folding bicycle evangelist uh, in conversation and waxing lyrical with um, Edward Donald, the marketing manager of Brompton Bikes down in their um, factory in Brentford, West London. And a Brompton must surely be the best all-round folding bicycle in the world. Um, I think most of the exports are going to Holland. um, And I think, in fact, the majority of the Brompton bike production are made for export, but you cannot miss them on the streets of London uh, with that absolutely iconic uh, curved uh, tube um, which uh, we heard there being pressed um, into, the, into the steel of the frame. Well, we're not going to leave the uh, technical side of um, bicycle manufacturing behind for too long on the bike show um, because we're coming straight up. We have Ian McCormick, uh, talking about wheel building and I ran into Ian at um, an event down in South London um, organised by Pollard's Hill Cyclists um, it was called Love Your Bike kind of event, event um, all day event uh, with rides um, all kinds of things going on bicycle films being shown um, talks about bike security uh, bicycle jumble sale um, bike, bicycle yoga and all kinds of other things. I think it's, it was the first of a series of Love Your Bike um, events that have been going on. Um, and Ian was quietly in the corner of the main entrance hall with a wheel-truing jig um, and was giving a demonstration about how to make a wheel. And uh, I asked him um, what had possessed him to come down uh, and spend his day revealing the secrets of the art. I'm here to enjoy this atmosphere and spirit of cycling, of which I'm an enthusiast, and to demonstrate the alleged mystery of building and assembling and truing bicycle wheels. Because this is the kind of black art, isn't it, of of cycle maintenance. And, I mean, I saw that you were doing this demonstration and it struck me that maybe the just like the uh, magic circle, there might be a wheel builder's circle who are going to be a little bit upset that you're out here explaining to normal people like me and the rest of people gathered around your little stand here how to do it. Is that fair? No, that's not fair. Um, the main thing you must have is a certain degree of mechanical aptitude. So let's start from the very beginning. What do you have? You've obviously got your rim and you've got your spokes and you've got a hub and then you've got to start connecting them all together. Yeah, um, the majority of wheels in use today are, will have 36 spokes, which will be 18 on each side of the wheel. And you, you put the spokes in in a specific order, 
and then you lace them through, you do them up with the nipples, and then you tighten the nipples again in a specific order until eventually you arrive at a wheel that is central in, in the, the bike, that doesn't wave up and down, and is, um, is true to run. And so why does it have this mystique wheel building? What is it about it that makes people tremble? I think it's because they don't, they don't understand, as I've said to various people today, how a screw thread works. Whichever way up the thing is, you have to know which way to turn it to achieve the result that you want. The actual initial assembly, if you, get the, if you get the basic first moves correct and you understand the principles... We ought to describe the setup you've got here. You've got a kind of what looks like a workbench with a, uh, an upside-down bicycle fork um, with a wheel which is kind of positioned vertically and then what looks like some kind of calipers. Is that a pair of calipers there that, that affixes to the workbench so you can check whether it's in true or not? Yeah, yeah. What you see here is a, what's called a wheel truing stand. Um, the wheel will fit in. It's a duplicate of a bicycle fork, effectively, but it has the addition of two stops that you can wind in until you spin the wheel and you can see if it's true or not. By It's moving to or from the stops. And if I turn it in some more, you can hear the wheel touching the stop. Where it's touching it, it's coming nearer the stop, so that is a high point on the rim, which you would adjust the spokes to remove. So we've got a wheel here that is, is it perfectly true or is it a little bit out of true? How would you go about making the adjustments that you need? It's not yet perfectly true, but I've got it to the stage now where I'm entering the area of diminishing returns. I can spend more and more time achieving less and less until it's exact. And what's the, which, which spoke do you tighten and which do you loosen to bring the rim round in a certain direction that you want it to go? Because that's always been my problem. I think I just don't understand, especially if I've had a mechanical or, 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 a, or I've gone in a pothole and I've lost a bit of uh, tension in some of my spokes. And I'm never quite sure how to bring it back. What, what are your tips for that sort of roadside recovery? If you imagine a slice through a wheel, the hub, the, the, the rim and the spokes form a pyramid. If the wheel is kicking to the left, you adjust, the, you tighten the spokes on the right to pull the wheel away from the high point. Or you can, if the other spokes are getting too tight, you can loosen the wheels on the same side as the high point to release the rim to come back into truth. And that's how you do it. Sounds simple. And you can use your sense of hearing to make fine-tuning, can't you? You can. Initially, you can see the... the um, the variation. After a while, with shiny metal on shiny metal, it becomes more difficult. So then you can you can hear it. And what about the tension of the spokes themselves the when you the pluck them? The tension of the spokes um, on a rear wheel is different because the one side of the spokes is at a tighter angle than the other side, so they will make a different noise. That's Why is that? Because they have to be tighter to carry the same load at a tighter angle because you have the drive side spokes the drive side has to leave space for the gear cluster the non-drive side does not so the, the hub is offset within the rim so the spokes on the drive side are flatter so they're tighter the non-drive side is looser and there is a, an audible difference and that sort of noise will tell you you've more or, less, more or less achieved correct tension. And so what would you recommend for anybody who wants to teach themselves how to do this? 
pay the money for a formal course. As a, I did mine on part of a fortnight course, it, the three-day section on wheel building. I took. Um, I was on in the the bike in at a place called Spalding in Lincolnshire. They do a two-week formal training course on cycle maintenance, three days of which, as I said, is about wheel building. Well, that was Ian McCormick trying in vain, I think, to uh, explain the principles of wheel building to uh, to me, um, and I'm not exactly the most technically gifted bicyclist um so if you're none the wiser about how a screw thread works then you're not alone just about coming to the end of the show and um, seeing as this is the last episode in the current season there's a few things I really want to get off my chest before I get taken off the airwaves for a few weeks Um, the first of these is Ken Livingston the Mayor of London a man who I generally think does a good job um, seems to have gone barking mad with his idea of a poll tax for bikes bikes in London must be registered so that people who break the law by going through red lights or riding on the pavement can be caught in speed cameras and brought to justice. Uh, this would pretty much send London back 10 or 20 years in terms of the progress that's been made um, towards making it a cycle-friendly city and it's an absolute disaster. I cannot believe why someone from Transport for London should allow this to have uh, got to the stage where the mayor is proposing it. But um, some good news, the Tour of Britain is coming to London um, on September the 3rd. The last of the six stages of the tour will be ending up in a uh, circuit race around the Mall and the London Park. So go down and watch. I think there's going to be a big jamboree kind of bike fest thing going on on Horse Cars Parade. So Sunday the 3rd of September, look out for me. I'll be there with a microphone. Um, And a little bit more around the corner... Um, is something going on at the National Theatre, which has been disappeared from my screen here. Uh, thanks, thanks very much. Um, but uh, from what I can remember, it's some daredevil theatrical trick riding in the free exhibition performance space outside the National Theatre. Wednesday lunchtime, that's uh, day after tomorrow, 
and uh, at 6:30 p.m. also on Wednesday, and then at Thursday at 6:30 p.m. involves a tandem, a trunk, straight jackets, and some uh, unfeasibly large shoes, apparently. And last but not least, the fabulous Bicycle Film Festival, um, which we talk about a lot on The Bike Show, is coming back to London. And the great Brent Barber will be here from New York City on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September. I think that means that there's one more day um, than last year, so there'll be a lot more films to be seen. And that is going to be going on at the Cochrane Theatre in Hoburn. I'll try and put links to all of these things on The Bike Show's website website which is www.bikeshow.blogspot.com with an enormous gasp of breath I think that's about it from me Um, and uh, ride safely enjoy um, August September and we'll be back um, heading into autumn when the uh, hardcore starts to take to the roads for winter in London on two wheels until then chapeau to Resonance 104.4 FM, brought to you by the London Musicians Collective.